The John Sands Sega SC3000, named by Video Age as the best home computer of 1983. And if you buy now, its price of less than $300 also includes this Sega Super Tape of six, yes, six great programs, plus a five-hour hands-on course in using your Sega. These extras alone are worth more than $200. All this, the best home computer of 1983, the Sega Super Tape, the free five-hour computer course, all for less than $300 at these stores now. Hurry, while stocks last. The Press Play and Tape Podcast. I'm um, one of your hosts today, tonight, Daz. And with me as usual... Oh, actually, it's episode 16. So there you go. Jeez, I'm real prepared tonight. Um, also with me, I have um, Alex. How you going, mate? Good, thanks, Daz. Yourself? Good, good, good. Bit under the weather tonight, so please excuse me if I make a few errors or blunders. So. Well, you already have, mate, so already you've got them have. out of the way. There you go, I know. That's yeah. one. That's one down. <laughs> <laughs> Next is a fellow podcaster, Mr. Azar, Aaron, Blah Jedi. Hello, gentlemen. How you doing, mate? G'day, Azar. I'm ready for bed. Yeah. <laughs> Kids and four-hour sleep and stuff will do that to you, but that's okay. I'm caffeinated and pumped and ready to talk. No, just make sure the heat is on. I'll be there soon, okay? <laughs> not cold. It's not cold in Dazzy. It's nice and balmy at the moment. Oh, not here. It was actually raining before. Yeah, it was. Uh, we got all our snow out of the way last week, so it's it's pretty nice here now. Oh, nice, man. That's good. And also, we have a special guest, don't we, boys? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so, <laughs> tonight, joining us from the Plus 3 to Geekdom podcast and also Retro Domination as well, I believe, is Correct. Mr. Tim Arnold. Hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi. I, I finally got an invite. I'm, I'm not much of a vintage computing guy. I know I know lots of other things, but um, tonight's one, we're talking about Sega, so I got I got the uh, the invite. Daz shirt-fronted me and said, you know about Sega, tell us your answers. <laughs> I thought I'd better come on because he's got a mighty grip. But how are we, gentlemen? Good. Fantastic, Tim. That's good. That's good. I'm sporting an empty glass of scotch, which I, I should have filled up prior to the show, and um, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that there'll be time for you to duck out quickly and uh, fill that up. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Well, before we uh, go on, yes, we will be talking about uh, Sega's um, early systems, the SG1000 and the SC3000, where the SG oh, yes. is, 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 a, is a console. So just just the SC three thousand because this is a okay. computing podcast, of course. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so what? We're not going to sneak in a bit of SG. Oh no, there is the, the the two the two are so tightly entwined. It's kind of like a Lannister thing, but we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. Anyway, before we get into that, I think uh, Mr. Timmy Arnold should um, actually introduce himself and tell us a bit about himself for people that don't know him. Whoever doesn't know him is insane, but... You obviously haven't listened to <laughs> Retro did. Domination podcast for the last 90-something episodes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Who am I? Um, some some guy that 
likes retro games. I used to do a YouTube channel under the the stupid moniker of uh, Retro Gamer Tim. I actually was I was perusing through those earlier times. Can I really should do another one in another six months or so? <laughs> um, but then yeah, I, I started doing podcasting with uh, Console Domination primarily, uh, and then we started the Retro Domination podcast and used to host that. And we'd gone off onto um, I still do RD every now and again. Um, but oh, yeah, I've gone off and do Plus 3 to Geekdom, which is more of a um, board gamey sort of nerdy sort of podcast, pop culture, all that sort of stuff, because I'm big on my board games these days. Um, retro collecting wise, um, I, I've got a, a garage full of dusty consoles that um, tend not to see the light of day. Um, I'm a big fan of the Sega Master System, their 8-bit console, because that was my first console, uh, my first real console, I should say. I won't go back into too many details, but... Um, I'm always very particular towards that one. Um, and through my collecting days, um, just as you do sort of discover um, things that weren't released in Australia and um, looked onto the um, the other sort of Sega stuff and like other cool things like PC Engine and whatnot. And um, yeah, discovered stuff like um, the SC3000 and the SG1000 and the, the Mark II. Was it, was it SG-1000 Mark II and then the Mark III, the Sega Master System? Um, and that was that was sort of the latter part of my collecting days. Where I really just sort of picked off the um, the odds and ends of uh, Mark III and the odd um, SG-1000 sort of bits and pieces and, and the odd um, SC-3000 cart if I could find it because they're, they're pretty – much like hen's teeth, one would say. But, um, yeah, so I just – I'm just a, a, a collector like you guys, but um, – Mainly, my main focus these days, I'm a mainly sort of, I've, I've sort of stopped my retro gaming side of things. Still love it, don't get me wrong, uh, but my collecting days um, are pretty much, unless I find something cool, are pretty much over. So, I'm more more board game nerd these days. <laughs> so, and Star Wars nerd, and everything else nerd. Just a nerd. Hi, I'm a Tim, and I'm a nerd. It's something I should have just said that five minutes ago. I was going to say, though, what was your first foray into vintage computing, though? What was your first one you ever played with? Um, see, I didn't really have um, a, a vintage computer. I guess it would have been a computer known as a computer back in those days, but I was always usually relying on my friends because um, they always had them. Um, I had a friend who I grew up with... Um, he had a Commodore 64, and we used to go through all the tape things, play Operation Wolf and all that sort of stuff. Extremely long loading times. We'd go play Army in between and then come back and play Army in the digital form. Um, but I think the very first, um, I guess what you class now as a vintage computer that I ever played on was um, Darren's favourite, the Amstrad CPC, <laughs> uh, where, I, where I delighted in the likes of um, Saboteur, which is one of my favourite games on that system. I don't know why. It's, it's not no, that it's great. It's a great game. It's a good game. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, you've changed your tune, haven't you, Daz? <laughs> I always like Saboteur. No, it doesn't mean... Oh, I got the 664, but it's a good game um, in general. Because <laughs> I think it was... Um, I can't remember how many colours it had. Um, um, as I said, I'm not, I'm not really big on the details of vintage computing, but I think we'll say four or six um, with the, the old Amsterdam. There's lots of greens and reds and um, blues. I think there was a blue. <laughs> Could be wrong. Um, but it was it was just cool to sit there with my friend. This is... Oh, man. When it was like grade one, Jeez. and just play through sort of uh, an action adventure sort of game, even though it was co- pretty linear in a way. You sort of just got to get through, get the discs, and sort of get to the helicopter. I'm pretty sure you could go onto a train on that as well, and there was dogs that you could jump and ninjas you could kick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just exciting. Um, playing was it Jet Set as Willy well. Yet? Did you used to play Jet Set Jet Willy? Set Willy? 
used to play Jet Set Willy. Um, there was one that used to have the theme. Um, the, the guy used to have a, a, a TARDIS or a phone box that he used to uh, travel around with. It was similar to Jet Set Willy in a way, but I cannot for the life of me remember the title of the game. Um, listeners, obviously, if you're listening and just going, dude, it's totally this, then write it up on their Facebook wall. Um, Barbarian, stuff like that. Barbarian 2. Uh, Batman, The um, was that an ocean release? If I'm, I think the, the, movie, the, movie, the, the movie one. Or the isometric, um, or the isometric yeah. Um, no, not the head over heels type of one. Oh, okay. um, it was the movie one. I think Robin was tied to a roller coaster and you had to find puzzle pieces and the joke was involved. Oh, I'm pretty sure I had the... That's the comic oh, one. That one. Ah, that's, the okay. Cape, that's the Cape Crusader. That's the one, yeah. I'm pretty sure I had the penguin on the front cover sort of thrusting his umbrella forwards. Yeah, it's the Cape Crusader. Yeah. Um, and also just remembered now that I'm sort of getting all nostalgic, probably... Prior to that, or around the same time, uh, we used the old Apple IIe's in, uh, this is 1983. Um, we used to have them in our computer lab, which was fanciful for those days, and we probably had the words computer lab uh, printed out on that dot matrix printer that the Apple IIe had and didn't it a big banner that you'd usually type in, Happy Birthday, Darren, yeah. um, and you'd tear, tear the sides <laughs> off, and it was pretty exciting for those days. Um, and we used to play, um, I think it was, um, well, you'd have that little turtle game <laughs> where you'd type in sort of, you know, like directions and it would draw a picture. Um, and oh, I think it was Jungle Hunt, which is that, is that the one that you swing from vine to vine and That's then you sort of go swimming and step alligators? That was on that as well. And I remember also staying at lunchtime because I was one of the cool kids that didn't want to go play football. I wanted to play on this fan-tangled new computer and um, complete, um, what was it, uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego with my friend Bassam. So, and we had like a, a guidebook there as well because it was a good learning aid. You get to learn the capital of places, which I've probably forgotten now. What's the capital of Australia? Who knows? Carmen gets away again. Um, <laughs> but no, that's, that's some of my earliest sort of memories of um, playing on sort of vintage sort of stuff. So, yeah. Pretty cool. solid foundation. Thanks. But, um, right. yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, oh, good, man. Hooray. That's good. <laughs> that's good. I, I think all of us had had, uh, had experiences with the Apple IIe's in primary school. And they're great memories, too. They were. Mm, mm. Mm. I still remember playing Karate Car, the Dark Crystal on there and all that crap. It was awesome. Karate Car, wow. Yeah. I'm nice one. I'm not in primary school. thought it would be too violent, but... Yeah. Anyway, that's that's enough of the Apple stuff. Okay, um, AC, would you like so, to take tonight. this? Take so, it away. Yeah, tonight we're going to talk about that one time when Sega released a computer. Dun, dun, dun. And what happened? So, well, that's what we're here to discover. So, while I could probably pull a George Lucas and start in the middle of the story, I want to go back a little <laughs> bit to when Sega actually started. Uh, so, the, the origins of Sega themselves you know, can be traced back to the 40s in Hawaii when there was a company named Standard Games that were doing coin ops for... Yeah, slot machines and things like that for army bases sort of just before or just after the onset of World War II because servicemen needed something to do in their downtime. Uh, so, yeah, so they, they were doing that. And after the war, they went on to rename themselves Service Games. Uh, now, at some point post-World War II into the early 50s, the US government started to crack down on slot machines and things. So Service Games would actually up and move the, all their operations into Tokyo 
to sell the machines to the bases and the public there. What would happen not long after that was they'd go on to shorten their name to Sega, taking obviously the first two letters of each each part of their name. So that was around 1960. Given around the same time, there was an American Air Force officer by the name of Michael Rosen who was stationed in Japan, and he had the idea to start a photo booth operation to take ID photos and stuff like that. So that would actually go on to be fairly successful, and he'd actually form a company called Rosen Enterprises, and in 1957 began also importing coin-op machines over to Japan. Now, come forward eight years to 1965, and you had Rosen Enterprises was operating over 200 arcades in Japan, with, and then Rosen would actually go on to negotiate a merger with Sega, who would then form Sega Enterprises. Now, sort of at this point, you know, they were still doing like the earlier coin operators, so electromagnetic machines, stuff like that. Um, and actually one year later, they'd go on to release Periscope, which was an electromagnetic magnetic shooting game that was basically designed of you standing at the con of a submarine and were using the, the little light guns to shoot at mechanical ships and things that would go across. Now, any of you guys ever actually seen, seen that machine? No. I sure have. Seattle Museum, Pinball Museum, yeah. Of course it would have. So, Was it actually working, Alex? Or uh, It was, but uh, you know what? I just uh, it, didn't, it didn't draw me in to actually play it. I just, um, you know, my eyes went straight to the pinball machines instead. <laughs> Funny. That's surpri- hardly surprising. <laughs> but, um, but look, either way, but either way, Periscope actually proved to be a pretty big success both in Japan and in America, and it was actually Sega's first steps across into the manufacturing world. And from that point onwards, they started to release titles, you know, from there through into the 70s or the golden age of arcades in Japan. So what about the home market? At this point, you know, from the late 70s onwards, Japan did actually have a, a pretty good home computer market going on. You had the likes of NEC, Toshiba, Sharp, all releasing systems, um, and even in the early 80s, Commodore would bring the Vic 1001 or the Vic 20 as we all know it to their shores. Uh, they all they all ran their own versions of BASIC and DOS, and um, it's actually this sort of fractured environment where you had a gentleman by the name of Kazuhiko Nishi from Microsoft Japan, who you may also know as the creator of the MSX. Ooh. Now... Yeah. Now, if you probably remember back to episode five when uh, Mr. Tony Cruz came on and gave gave us all a pretty good masterclass in the MSX, mm-hmm. probably don't need to touch over that that side of things too much. But the biggest thing there was that you know, in the early eighties, Nishi was shopping the, the MSX proposal around to quite a number of Japanese computer makers to get them on board for the launch of this this standard or the machines based around it. So it, it's it's likely. And certainly there's things that suggest that, you know, Sega were likely shown or at least got wind of that this this was going to be a thing. And along with the fact that this time their arcade profits were starting to decline a little, that they decided to also enter the home market and have a crack at their own home computer. So, 1983. That's yeah, you're right. Wow. I guess that's, that's, that's where the uh, SC3000 came in. <laughs> this is it. This is it. So, come 1983... Sega would actually, yeah, have two two computers um, lined up, ready to go, aiming at the, the more affordable end of the market. Uh, so we had the Sega Computer 3000 or the SC3000, which retailed for 29,800 yen, and 
you also had the SC3000H, which came in at 33,800 yen. Now, both these were near identical. They same size shell, same look, ran the same. But the biggest difference being is that the, the SC3000 had had a different rule. They had the rubber keyboard, whereas the SC the H had a more the physical, the moving keyboard that you find, as well as the H had slightly more RAM. We can get we'll get to that shortly. So what um but what happened from there was though, as well as the two computers, Sega would also actually release a cut down version of these in the guise of the SG one thousand console or the Sega Games one thousand, uh, which came in at fifteen thousand yen. Now it was cut down, it had a little bit less RAM, it had integrated controllers and things like that. But this this release was actually response to when they caught wind of this little company called Nintendo that was going to release something called a Famicom um, at some point. Now, a bit of history there, but I think it's probably a, a conversation for a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I know that the um, Famicom also released their um, family computer as well, also with the, the uh, keyboard add-on as well, just to, just to compete. Yeah. That's as they do. <laughs> as they do. And, and the funny thing is, and it's something that I... I never was never aware of was originally that both the um, the SG one thousand and the three thousand and the Famicom actually came out on the same day in July nineteen eighty three. Yep. So, which yep. is a unfortunate timing for Sega, potentially. But uh, mm. but again, probably it's conversation for a different day, certainly. But yeah, the uh, either way though, the they hit the market with it, and now that's Japan on the on the local front. Both machines actually also saw a release over here with John Sands, and yes, that is the greeting card company that sold electronics at the time um, in Australia and Grandstand in New Zealand would actually pick up the, dis- the local distribution licenses. So in 1984, we saw John Sands bring the SE3000 out to our shores for $299, while the 3000H came in a touch more at $349. So pretty much aiming at the VIC-20 end of the market where the sixty the C64 was still up around the 599 mark at this point. Uh, but to put it into context of these days, at those prices, you'd be looking at $910 and $1,063 respectively if you want to bring <laughs> That's insane. It's, and if you look on eBay and you want to buy one box, it's probably around the same. <laughs> it's not far off. Yeah, it's getting up there. It's getting up there. Um, yeah, so but our Kiwi mates, they also sort of thought the actual machine came in at three hundred and ninety nine New Zealand dollars, which is seems cheap because I always thought it was worth heaps less, heaps mm. dollars, their dollars worth heaps less than ours. So, eh. but um, um, interesting, no North American release for the SG one thousand or the three thousand. No, not at all. the The system had a, there was some of the European countries and some of the other Asian regions got got a release. Uh, Italy had the, the Yeno 3000, as it was known. That's right, um, yeah. But that was it. It was largely confined to this side of the world. So it, a lot of re- lot of reasons why, but but either way, yeah. Oh, yeah, good point, actually, with the um, the market crash as well. Probably d- doesn't help matters, especially in America. It was uh, suicide to, to go and try and bring something new into the market. But, um, but either way, Fair call. yeah. Because I think I think the the whole sort of uh, theory behind the Famicom coming out, um, just to go off topic a little bit, um, 
they, they, they named it the family computer because I think they wanted to veer away from uh, a video game system and they want to call it, you know, like super family computer yeah. um, where they sort of think where you can use it for something else apart from games. Um, <laughs> so That's I think it. that, yeah, that as well. So, but it's interesting. Yeah. It was the, the, the SG 3000 was pretty much short lived. Um, and like, like you said, they sort of, they mainly sort of, sort of thought, oh, we'll release this and going, oh, Nintendo, why? <laughs> and it was the start of start of things to come, yeah. really, and that's where they released the SG-1000, uh, yeah, which I'll, is just I'll, primarily... Sorry? I was going to say, yeah, actually, you were saying you probably get ahead of ourselves there, because it definitely would come to the with the decline and sort of what actually happened for it, because, yeah, you, you're not wrong. The, mm. the, uh, the, the competition and things, but... No, what was actually... And you, you bring up an interesting point, though, about the fact Nintendo calling it the, the Famicom or the, the family computer was, because prior to 1983... There, there was no video game home video game market in Japan. You had mm. the arcades; everyone loved the hell out of them. There were you know shortages of hundred yen coins left, right, and center. There was a couple of machines that were effectively pong clones of sorts, but the home computer market was largely largely where it was. So, you know, with the the crash and everything happening, it was yeah, like you said, calling it a computer and sort of coming in to sort of try and avoid that notion of. It's a video game mm. console. Yeah, you know, helps sort of helps ease retails and helps sort of get people to actually want to carry it and buy it. So, but yeah. So, but um, but look, the actual machine itself. Yeah, you know, the the two of them are fundamentally identical in, in appearances. They both have the same sort of sleek design. They're a nice, yeah. You know, they are a nice looking little machine. Uh, so, whereas with the three thousand, you had as I said the the rubber travel keyboard. So, I think the um, ZX Specky style stuff. Yeah, Whereas the that, yeah, I was going to ask that was is it like the ZX Specky? It, it mm. definitely is. Uh, personal opinion, I find the three thousands keyboard a little better to use, uh, but also to its its basic at least when you boot up off a basic cart, the it's a lot more Commodore sixty four like DOS type basic stuff. So you don't actually have the the Specky commands like where it confuses me still. Yeah, that doesn't make sense uh, to me either. <laughs> Yes, that, um, but yeah, and as I said, the, the H version had the proper moving keys keyboard, which you know, for, for programming and stuff like that, it, it definitely made a, a big difference in you know, the usability. It was a lot easier and faster to type on. Uh, so yeah, so but mentioning the like the basic side of things, the actual SC three thousands, interestingly enough, unlike the Vic twenty and that, didn't actually have any sort of basic ROM built into it. Uh, so instead, this was all booted off off cartridges that you'd pop into the right-hand side of the machine. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, what you get is if you try to power it on without a cartridge inserted, you get this delightful dark green screen and a low-pitch hum noise, which is basically the sound chip emitting that noise, which the software would then go on to mute when it loads. Uh, something I certainly, I certainly came across when I got my SE3000 because the cartridge port wasn't soldered on properly. So everything I was doing didn't want to get anything loaded so yeah so but, um, other than that though you can also load games wise this the c3000 do support the sega my card so this is where this this actually came in so i think correct me if i'm wrong here guys but the um the sg1000 did actually have the card support uh sg1000 uh card support i think was via the card catcher 
it, it also needed the card catcher. So which yeah, was... it, only when they brought in the uh, SD one thousand Mark two is I'm pretty sure when they had the cart slot or what is it the Mark three? One in the Mark three was actually where we had the, the slot actually built in. Mm-hmm. That's um, on the white version. I'm not too yeah. I think yeah. No, the basic uh, Mark three they actually had the cart slot built in, but otherwise prior to that it was the the card catcher option. Yep, which is, for those who have not seen it, was basically a, a cartridge-shaped thing that actually had a slot for the, the My Cards. So, oh, wow. And this hmm. is actually... Yeah. So, and they're the, uh, Who card, they're the Who Card style cards. So the same as you see with the uh, Master System and the Mark III. Okay. Do yeah, the sort of entry-level. Entry do they work on the Mark III? The older ones? Yes. Um, oh, yes. Pretty much everything Sega um, SG-1000 all the way to Mark III will work up onto the Mark III. So the Mark III is backwards compatible. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and also, another interesting little tidbit, um, the reason why they marketed the cards is they saw kids were sort of like bringing games to each other's houses and they thought it'd be like an easily transportable um, little sort of thing that the kids could whack in their pocket and just go, all right, you want to play some Doki Doki Penguin Land? I've got one in my pocket. So it was that sort of <laughs> cool, cool sort of transportable little gimmick, I guess. Um, like there was The memory on them was small and like some of the graphics were a little bit limited on them, um, but a super cool thing to, to play around with as well. Uh, look, yeah, that's it. The uh, I mean, the and that that's probably one of the other things that did lead lead to its demise. Which getting a little ahead of myself, but was just that, you know, compared to some of the other systems at the time, like it it did lack a little bit in that that area. So, uh, yeah. So, but look, the, the rest of the system though, look, it's a pretty pretty standard sort of system output wise. I mean, the, the biggest thing I'd probably call out here though is that it actually uses the same AV DIN plug as you'll find on the Master System and original Mega Drive. So. You know, for those of us that have uh, the, the cables around, like if you do happen to pick an SC3000 up, you can actually utilise the same AV lead handy. Oh, cool. And, yeah, avoiding having to use RF is always a good thing. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, also, you had um, your, um, I think it's the uh, SR1000 uh, tape uh, data quarter, uh, which you could plug into the side and um, for all your basic programming needs and also software-based sort of stuff. So if, if you're inclined yeah. to not play games... Uh, you can also go into sort of accounting and mathematics programs and things like that as well on cassette, with, um, the, optional, with the optional printer attachment as well. And that's right. But, um, and what's actually interesting is the um, the so the SR one thousand like yeah it, it came out at a hundred bucks in Australia or ninety nine dollars mm-hmm. and yeah it um it was interesting enough that it got a lot more popularity in Australia and New Zealand than it did see in Japan that um, tape software and things was existent, but it was the, the home enthusiast market over here was driven by the SR1000. Uh, yes. So we, uh, we saw a lot a lot of software coming out and you know, a lot of the enthusiasts doing type-ins and actual mail-order tape stuff. So um, there's something else I didn't realise, though, is because it uses the standard 3.5mm mono audio in-out jacks, it doesn't have a, sta- like a DIN plug or anything like that, it actually will happily work with any micro or any vintage computer that has the 3.5 mil jack um and it i've actually found it's pretty, a pretty robust little drive so it's can be used but um yeah another another cool add-on they had was um i think with the control station i don't know the serial numbers from it but um that actually added the use of the three inch uh floppies as well yeah, so the sf 7000 floppy unit it's probably, when we're talking about vintage Seeker stuff, is probably one of the rarest bits of hardware you'll come across for it. It came out in Australia for a ludicrous $599. So the same price you get a Commodore wow. 64 for. 
Um, it utilized the three-inch floppies, as Tim mentioned, um, and also actually expanded your SC3000 out to 64K RAM. Uh, there wasn't a lot of tape disk software. Yeah, it was predominantly cartridge-based, mm. all tapes. Um, these day and age, good luck finding one. Uh, I've seen several that have been sort of in the thousand eighteen hundred dollar mark on ebay which i think is people just speculating but they don't come yeah. very well I've, I've in all my years i've only seen one um it's amazing like you say like people putting stuff up um and overpriced and speculating i'm um, during my research this week i noticed um someone put up um what was it uh se 3000h computer boxed um, this was in a whirlpool forums from 2008 and just going should i throw this thing away is it junk or what oh, yeah. and this yeah. guy just wanted to throw it away and he's like oh man <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's just uh, some of the people but you know mine i think as i mentioned before like i, I came across mine um in a swap for a, a spare commodore 64 i'd done up and the guy just went look it's this sega computer thing i, I can't get it to work and so i'm like do you want to swap it i'm like yes sure no worries mm. done give me <laughs> And yeah. yeah, like he had no idea what it was, had no idea what he was doing with it, and it wasn't until I got cartridges for it that you know that's when I discovered that it didn't actually work properly, and that was yeah what what started me off on learning a lot more about the unit. At, um, yeah. So you is, mentioned that the cartridge slot wasn't connected to the main board. Well, it was like most things of that that age. The the actual solder had worn, but it wasn't until before I'd gone through a whole bunch of other things and learning about voltages and what was what. And and it wasn't just until I actually had sat down and had a good look at the actual solder themselves and discovered there was a few dry joints. So, yeah, reflow it, and suddenly I had a working system. I think that's uh, the issue with mine. I managed to um, get one... um uh, prior, prior to me getting this, I, I was just like, Sega computer, what? Uh, <laughs> quite a few years ago from uh, Frank Skilton, who was on the RD podcast, ever oh, yes. episode 40-something or other. Um, and he goes, oh, I've got a boxed one. Do you want it? I was like, yeah, all right. How much? He goes, oh, 40 bucks, mailed. I was like, yeah, all right. So, but yeah, it's just sat on, the, sat on the shelf, Matt Cawley style. Um, <laughs> but I will get, I will get around to, uh, to getting it up and, up and running. So yeah, look, they're they're a good, like I said, they're a good little system, and there's some good some good options out there, some good games on them. But yeah, but like I said, stuff can come to. So look, and on the other side, control wise, they're actually utilise exactly the same two button joystick pads as the Master System. Uh, they did actually have some of their own unique controllers. So the original SG one thousand actually followed the Famicom's lead with having wide in controllers, and they were pretty horrible. Yeah. Uh, however. Following that with the Mark II and the SC3000s, you actually had like the, the SJ200, which was modelled after the 1000s joystick. So the, the horizontal ones are the buttons at the top with the joystick up there, and they were terrible. Uh, whereas like you've got the SJ300, which is a lot more of a conventional joystick. So like you'd see on the uh, the C64 and all that. But honestly, I, I still find I, I use the Master System control pad every day of the week when I have mine out, um, especially because all of the joysticks for them can set you back over a hundred bucks a pop, which to me is insane unless you're a completist. Yeah, that's the thing. So hardware-wise, though, like the actual grunt part of things, yeah, it, a lot of the components were similar to systems at the time. I mean, processing duties were actually covered by the NEC 780C, which clocked in at 3.58 megahertz. Now, anyone want to take a stab in the dark as which one that that's a clone of? 
the Zilog. Bingo. It is absolutely a clone of the Zilog Z80. So everyone's favorite vintage computing processor from the Speckies, the Amstrads, and even the Master System later on down the track. So the two models actually ran different boards of onboard RAM, which is also where the price differencing came between them. So the, the base 3000 ran the 16K out of the box, while the H actually upped that to 32K, but both could be expanded through the use of cartridges or, as mentioned, the SF7000 to just give you a bit more if you did want to program or load some of the games off tape that did need the extra. Uh, Graphically-wise, the 3000 actually also covered another popular stalwart of the time in the Texas Instrument TMS, the 9929A, with along with 16K of video RAM. So you may actually remember that from other systems like the various MSXs, the ColecoVision, and even my my personal favourite, the Dick Smith Wizard. Um, so it gave it the ability to push out a resolution of 256 by 192 pixels and a palette of 15 colours. So yeah, it graphically it looked similar to a lot of the, the systems of the time, um, but it just yeah, it lacked some of the grunt, which meant you know some of the games in comparison to, say, like the stuff on the VIC-20 just maybe weren't quite as quick, didn't look or sound as good. Uh, so mentioning the VIC-20, I guess, is you know, coming on. So, I mean, ultimately, in Japan, while the XLSS C3000 did actually perform better than the, the SG-1000, a lack of third-party games, actually a lack of any real external manufacturer support, meant that both shell fell pretty short against the might of the Famicom and actually the MSX, um, both of which who had quite a bit of third-party support and other things that... So, and unfortunately, it meant that, yeah, that both systems, both Sega would actually shelve the system come 1985 in Japan, and as they started to put all their resources into getting the Sega Mark III ready for a launch, which obviously, as we all know, is the, the master system for those of us in the West. Now, Australia and New Zealand were a touch different on this front, though. So... Over here, the S3 3000 actually performed pretty well, uh, gathering a pretty good user base across the board. I mean, the sales figures from those times are pretty sketchy, but there's sort of figures thrown around that they reckon about 15,000 SC3000s were sold in Australia by the time it, it ended distribution in 1986. It's a pretty good number, but obviously, again, when you compare to the, to the Commodore 64 or the VIC-20, it's pretty small fish. Yeah. Um, but look, there's no real understanding why John Sands decided to, to wind it up. But yeah, again, given that at this point, you know, the, all the Sega had all but stopped game, making games for it. All you had was the tape-based releases from local and Kiwis. So it, it probably made you know, something where you find it's a pretty hard sell when there's very small base of games left, and you've got stuff at you know 1986. You had you know, a wealth of much more powerful, better games to choose from on the, the bigger systems. So. Yeah, that, um, that's pretty much the hardware in, in a nutshell. I mean, the you know, the biggest, as I said, the biggest thing that killed it was just the, the lack of power, that the games themselves looked all right, but it handled like a Coleco. But when you mm. had sex and the Famicom around, it just it made it a really tough decision to sort of go, well, I could spend $300 here, or I could go and get one of these two other systems and get access to Mamarios, to you know, Metal Gear, Castlevania, and all that sort of stuff. I think it's always been closely sort of um, compared to the Coleco as well, graphically. And 
just the way it's sort of gone about things. So, yeah. There's, they are very close as far as hardware and software goes that there's you know, not a lot of difference between the two in that respect. So, uh, but, so that, that's a lot of hardware stuff. Games-wise, uh, they did have... I mean, Sega at this point had a pretty big arcade library. You know, Zaxxon and all the other ones, you know, popular ones like that from the time meant that, you know, they had quite a few titles to draw from, uh, but they were all in-house, in-house releases. Uh, things like they had the GP World, which I think was a, there's a laser disc game that while that it couldn't support it, actually ended up being a, a pretty good F1 racing game through to things like Hero, Bomb Jack, uh, which is actually, I think is a really good port. Uh, yeah, Choplifter. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it um, plays well. I mean, look, graphically, it's you, know, you don't have the same sort of sprites as you might have on the 64, but it, it is actually a really good conversion. They did um, um, Sega Gallagher as well, or Galaga. did. Yep. Which is a decent, decent sort of port. Elevator Action was another nice one. I, I actually quite enjoyed. Yeah. Anyone else check that one out? Yeah. No? Yes? No? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, I never, never played it. Never played it. Oh, Okay. Um, but just one of one of the um, the cooler ones that I played, um, me being a bit of, bit of a Wonder Boy fan, um, the original Wonder Boy got ported onto that, even though it did um, was released on the the Master System uh, later on. Um, on the the Sega card game or the My Card, um, the original Wonder Boy came in. It was pretty uh, grotesquely sprited, I guess, um, and the scrolling wasn't wasn't fantastic. But um, I think the game it only had oh, six levels. Don't quote me on that, and we're just constantly loop, and most likely, as arcade games do, just consistently get harder and harder. Um, but it was cool to sort of see like a um, a, a, a scrolling sort of um, a, a platformer in a way um, on, on that limited system. Yeah, um, and that's something well, that's you're right. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> I'll go on to my next game after that. No, um, no, you're yeah, <laughs> go for it, buddy. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> All right. So, um, another really cool one um, that I'm a massive fan on um, of the on, on the latest systems, but um, they released um, their original arcade game was Sega Ninja, um, which I guess the Master System players would know as um, just simply the Ninja, which was one of their budget titles that they released in the Master System. Um, that was actually ported as Ninja Princess, Alex, on the on the, uh, on the Sega My Card. I know you're a fan of that one. Absolutely, yeah, man. And and I know you mentioned Elevator Action. Um, got that on the my card. Yeah, love it. It's a great, uh, great, port. great conversion, great I reckon. Port. Yeah, well, to to think the the cards. How big were they? Were they like thirty two k or something smaller? Yeah, um, the fact that they can actually fit all that stuff, man, it's unbelievable. Mm. Um, I did. I think it lost a couple of the event levels um, where the horses would be sort of um, running down the sort of screen, and um, maybe the oh, there's another one uh, where wolves would chase you. There's a scrolling level in the ninja, but they they obviously took that out for the, the scrolling was going to be a little bit hard with the wolves and whatnot. But it still remains as a great game um, and a faithful port uh, to the the the, the arcade classic. Sync um, yeah. Commando slash Akari Warriors and and Good Times plus Ninjas. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Uh, actually, uh, Borderline is another one that I know, which is a lesser known Sega arcade game, but it's uh, another sort of nice shoot 'em up of like shoot 'em up sort of style game where you're running around like which is nice and colourful. Looks hard, 
plays hard, but it's it's not actually too bad. Um, however, probably one of my my favourites, and it's one that I would dearly love to get a hold of a cartridge version of, um, is a game called Girls Garden. Have any of you oh, guys played was... it? No. Yes. Um, so that's one of the first games very... by Yuji Nakai, isn't it? Creator is, of Sonic. Absolutely. And Hiroshi Kawaguchi. Uh, which, yeah, Yuji being the creator of Sonic, and Hiroshi's pretty much handled music for a lot of Sega's best arcade titles like Outrun and Space Harrier. So, what was it, you ask? It is (laughs) a very unique little title where you're basically, you're playing a girl called Papri, and you're collecting flowers to make a bouquet for your boyfriend, Minto, who has a wandering eye, and if you take too long, he'll leave you for another girl. Uh, so it's actually so cited is actually cited as being one of the earliest dating sims ever made uh, which sounds odd and I mean you know what dating sims are like these days Um, but it's it's actually a lot of fun so it's actually presented as a a top down maze game so I think I think what's best to describe it I was almost going to say Pac-Man but almost it's it's difficult to explain isn't it Look, it's look. Think, if you think of almost like a two D maze game with sort of three D ish looking sprites on it, but the idea being is you run around, you collect flowers, and you've got to get enough flowers to build the bouquet, and then run back to your home to present them to your boyfriend uh, to help sort of to stop to try and stop you. You've got a whole bunch of bears, water obstacles, and things. So you've got to basically run around, avoid collecting dead flowers, drop honey to, to stop the bears from. Well, I don't actually know what they do. I think they just kind of like hug you and you lose a heart. It's it's all very yeah. cutesy, but honestly, don't let the, the name or the, the general premise fool you. Like, it is actually a, quite a fair bit of fun, and it's probably one of the better games on the system. I think it, the, the flowers sprout at a right time, and if you get them too late, that's when they become like a, a dead flower. And, yep. That's and it kind it. of... I don't know if it scrolls or if it's like a multi-screen sort of thing. No, no, it scrolls. Um, no, no, it, it is actually... We cross bridges and whatnot, and that's it. there's ponds. That is it. And it actually does the scrolling pretty well. Like, it's, it is really smooth. Mm. So it's um, one, one to have a look out for if you ever, ever sort of find yourself in a position to pick it up for not a great deal. So it, it is playable um, in Japanese, then? Oh, it's yeah, not even no. Japanese. It's yeah. not even Japanese. It's just... But yeah, definitely, definitely take a look. Uh, I mean, look, and the, for those, I mean, on the flip side, I mean, look, Tim mentioned before, the games are hard to find, and the game, sorry, I'll rephrase that, the games are hard to find at a price that isn't ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there are still some enthusiasts out there that, you know, in uh, New Zealand, as I mentioned before, like, it actually had a following in New Zealand, almost rivaling the C64, as far as the, the passion and stuff like that goes. So, it means to this day, there are actually still quite a few people over there that make still make hardware for it um so there's a cart a flash cart available for it which is called the sc3000 survivor cart which is not quite as easy to use as say like an everdrive or a 1541 ultimate but it effectively does allow you to get the cart and it has all the titles pre-programmed on it where you can just pop it into side of your your sc3000 and play them on the original hardware so yeah which i thought was an interesting one to come across because it's a obscure enough system that you wouldn't think that those sort of things that exist but yeah so i'm one to have a look out for if you if you are keen well what's that what's a game i remember that's right now i remember tim um suggested it to me he, he liked it that dragon wang dragon wang that's <laughs> yeah. basically uh it's similar to a kung fu master yeah or um yep. 
yeah, that's you sort of scroll side to side. I think then you go up a level and go back to the left and. Yeah, similar to uh, Kung Fu Master. That's actually good fun. I enjoyed it. Um, I Hero, enjoyed it. Hero, oh, you actually liked it? I liked it, yeah. Nice, yeah, man. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite uh, space shooters, um, Xerion, or Xerion, however you want to, tomato, tomato. Um, that was uh, released on it as well, I think. Um, you've, that was also, was that on the MSX? I'm not too sure, but uh, you can also find that on the Famicom. Yeah. Um, it's on the MSX. <laughs> it's, it's always been one of my favourite games because I remember I, I never knew the name of it for years and I played it so many times as a kid and when I found out that I was like yes so um, yeah and, and interesting to see um, ports of like Hero and uh, Pitfall 2 um, as well getting onto the um, SG-1002 so yeah Sega Sega bought them over and made their own in-house versions of them so yeah mm. um, look, there, there's, there's, there's a lot I mean, look, so there is a lot there and it's all Predominantly their back catalogue, but yeah, there's. Uh, as I said it's well worth having it, having a look at, even if you just uh, yeah, pop the emulation up and have a look and see where some of these games started from. Uh, so yeah, but any yeah, other definitely. games, for you guys? Um, I just yeah, really quick. Um, if you want to check out a couple of cool little games that just aren't sort of crappy shooters or racing games or sports titles, <laughs> um, was it Rock and Bolt? Uh, has anyone checked that one out? Nah, I haven't heard of that one. Um, basic, basically, you're. Uh, I think it's supposed to take place on scaffolding, like you're like a, a scaffolding tradie sort of guy, um, and you've got to basically uh, you've got scaffolding, which has got screws that you got to put in, and there's a certain puzzle way you have to um, piece the um, I guess the, the scaffolding in order to get from one side of the map to the other. Um, so you basically go there, screw it down, and then you can go into the next piece. It locks that in, uh, screw it down, then you make your way to the other side of the level. It's 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 a cool little sort of thinking puzzle game, um, similar to I, I guess a, a tradesman inspired game. Um, <laughs> that's like electrician on the um, the Famicom disc system, I'm, which is um. I'm actually picturing something like on the Game and Watch for some reason. Yeah, you, you have to check out a video. It's yeah. it's kind of in that. I think it's like that isometric sort of view, similar to like um head um head over heels. But um, it's worth checking out. It's on that forty five angle, like enduro racer. Oh, it's <laughs> like it, that. It's cool, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's a cool little game. Um, also just really quick, um, Doki Doki Penguin Land. Um, I'm a huge fan of that game on the Master System. Um, that's also on the my card. Which um, Duck Maze, I think they made on the, the Famicom via a, a HES cart. Um, that's like a puzzle gamer where you've got all ice and different traps. You start at the top of the screen, you're a penguin, you've got an egg, and you've got to transport that down to the bottom of the screen via sort of you can break bits of ice and whatnot. Um, there's bears that will take your egg away and smash it, and you can't let it drop too far. So you've got to think your way of going uh, going through and safely getting the egg down to the bottom of the screen. So Doki Doki Penguin Land, fantastic little game. And if you want to expand on that, um, the Master System version does have a map editor mode. So you can make something really, really hard for you guys to annoy your friends with. <laughs> cool. Something that um, GP, actually coming back to like GP World, was actually probably, I think, was one of the first racing games that actually also had a map editor, a very rudimentary map editor, but it was one where you could, yeah, make your own tracks to, to race around and set times to your friends to compete against. That was um, always which cool. Is, but um, of course, as well, I mean, obviously, as well, the, the SC-1000 also did actually get a number of load runner ports because basically, I think if there are very few systems in the world that have never had a load runner port that seems to pop up everywhere. 
I know I spoke to you briefly last week. How was um, safari hunting? Catch anything? (laughs) It's slow. It is... For Wizard of War, for someone that's used to Wizard of War, Safari Hunting is a very slow-paced, measured game that, to be honest, I still can't pass the first level. I've done it a couple of times, not many, but then my interest waned. (laughs) So I did enjoy the the, the shooting aspect, and I think you could could quickly sort of take your um, Safari Hunting bus around the, the outskirts level and sort of sneak inside the hedge maze. And um, was it, it was it lions that came out or elephants? I can't remember. Uh, it was yes. every it was everything. Uh, so you had, you had and... snake snakes, elephants, gorillas, and lions would jump out. So yeah, very. But just, you were stunning them. You were. Yeah, I just thought it was hilarious that you just shoot these things and just drag them back to your <laughs> to your bus. I was like, that's pretty morbid. But anyway. But yeah, so look, that's that's probably a good place to sort of start wrapping it up. That yeah, that's the, the you know, a brief overview of the system. It's one of these ones where it's if you can find one at a reasonable price. That you know, the three SC three thousand is you know, it is a nice little machine to have, um, or at the very least, it's, it's a good one to go and at least give a give a run on on yeah you know, your, your favorite emulator or that just to, again see where some of our games came from. If only to play things like Girls Garden and stuff to see where you know, guys that have gone on to make bigger and better games that we all know and love you know, sort of start, started from and yeah so that's that's a wrap there so on to our publisher yes okay so today's publisher choice is um, Activision which I'm really excited about Alex would you give us a quick rundown on the history how's that it'll be ultra ultra quick man ultra Activision quick. was Ultra quick, yeah. Uh, founded in um, 1979 by ex-Atari fellas, but um, it, it's actually the first independent developer and um, uh, still going till this day, actually. So um, there we go. Um, Larry Kemplin, Dave Dave Crane, um, uh, who are the other two? There was Whitehead and Miller. Oh, I can't remember their first names, but... Um, Robert Whitehead uh, yeah. and Alan Miller. That's it. Yeah, they formed that division after Mr. Kassar from Yars Revenge. Ray Kassar, CEO, said uh, the game developers are no different than the guys that are putting the cartridges together on the assembly line. And um, they cracked the shits and thought, "Nah, stuff this. Uh, we want to put our names on the uh, on the game." So they went ahead and created uh, Activision and yeah, started making mega bucks for themselves. It's so, good on them too. That's a- yeah, no, nah, definitely, man, definitely, and absolutely. Yeah, and- and I'm not going to go into the games because we're going to talk about them now, but um, they made a shit ton of um, games that um, still play quite well to this day. Oh, yeah. Mm. I totally agree. And it's funny because back in the day, because I used to play them on the Atari 2600, um, I, ch- I really freaked out when I saw that they made them for computers as well. So I was like, I, th- I thought they're only an Atari 2600 exclusive. You know, when you're young, you don't understand. You, you know, know what? You know you know what, Des? I actually had the same reaction. I remember when I saw Activision um, uh, playing Decathlon on the 64. I just went, what? What? Yeah, what the hell? Yeah. It's true. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, cool. Okay, so we'll uh, quickly go to the Twitters and Facebook. I will go to the Twitters. So, Mr. Stacey Borg, Mr. Dr. Turleytech comes out to say, so on the C64, he's going to go with Pitfall 2. Ghostbusters and Wonder Boy and Monsterland, but so many games there though, like River Raid and Hero. Come down to so Uncle K, Kevin Tilly, 
comes out and says there were so many good ones and lots of duds too. So Pitfall 2, Hero, and Power Drift, obviously all on the C64. Oh, true. Yeah, I didn't think and of so, that. That's right. They did the Power Drift. That's right. Yeah. And um, the guys actually even go on to sort of talk about that, yeah, it was actually a, a very good port of the game Loved uh, for the 64. Yeah. And did it in a single load, I believe. Yeah, it's correct. Yeah. Uh, so Cameron Ga- Davis, Mr. Gazunta. Does he come out to say, or oh, actually say, if no one answers Alter Ego, then there's something wrong with the world that this game was a generation ahead of its time. Alter Ego? I'm not even sure if I know this, that game. Never never heard of it till right now. <laughs> oh, so, really? so, 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 Gazunta, you can, you can shoot me in two weeks' time. <laughs> so, that, that was the, so that, that was the one where it was a life simulator where you answered questions and you sort of, like, it was a multi choice thing where you went through life to different situations you could answer. It was. It was interesting. You could get married. You could do other stuff. You could die. You could. There was a male and a female version. It was. It, it was definitely interesting for its time. You, you, wow. You'd know it if you saw it. Uh-huh. Um, however, Cameron did actually does go on to say though his, his top three though were Pathfinder, Ghostbusters, and River Raid. Uh, in fact, he liked the start of Ghostbusters when you fill in the application form being so cl- was so clever. <laughs> PSO, 8-bit stink boy, oh, SNK boy, sorry, Ooh, not stink, sorry about that. Um, so, top Activision games for home computers, Labyrinth, Coronas Rift, and Aliens, again, all on the C64. Rob Caporetto, just fresh back from his trip to AVCon, no doubt recovering still. Um, he says that this is tough, in no particular order, River Raid, no surprise, Zone Ranger on the, the Atari and the C64, and Dreadnought Factor on the Atari. Jeez, I haven't even so, heard that before. Jeez, they're, they're ripping out the obscure ones. Yeah, well, it's good. That's what we're here for. It's um, yeah. So, Anthony Stiller, Ant Stiller says this is a tough one. As there's so many great titles, but the early ones reign: Ghostbusters, Hero, and Park Patrol. Eric Nelson, The Do Project, says River Raid on the C64 and oh, Atari 5200. Wow, obscure much. Um, Hero on the 64 and Little Computer People on the C64. JR, J Robs says Rampage on any platform, Afterburner on the Specky, and Ghostbusters on the Specky. I know Ghostbusters is crap, but I loved it as a kitty. I don't recall the Specky version of either of those last two. Alex? No. no uh, probably would have seen them in magazines, but I always, uh, yeah rubbished anything on the specky man so i'm probably not the, be- I'm probably not the best person to ask <laughs> oh andrew andrew fisher merman 1974 comes to say so many to choose c64 versions of ghostbusters park patrol and master of the lamps oh park, Mark patrol, Gard- was, park patrol was actually a great game i like that i forgot all about that one okay so where are we up to so nearly at the bottom so mark gardner so come and say Ghostbusters, Decathlon, and Gary Kitchen's Game Maker, which contained a version of David Crane's Pitfall. Ooh. I I don't oh, know that one. Me neither. Yeah. Uh, so we've got Ethan Padfoot said that I'll go early Activision and say Ghostbusters, Hero, and Pitfall 1 and 2. Lol, 3 if you count both Pitfalls as 1, and all from 1984. Eh, I'll let it slide. It's <laughs> um, so David Ross, so at C64, Said Ghostbusters, Tass Times in Tone Town, and Pathfinder. I've, I've, got, to, I've I... got to try Pathfinder. I've, I've got like two carts of them sitting in my drawer. 
It's just past, never, past finder. Is it past, past finder? finder sorry. Yeah, past sorry. finder, yeah. Past. All right, well, I've got two of them and I've never played it. I thought, okay, this doesn't look interesting, but I'll give it a go, actually. And it's funny, um, yeah. I just remembered now uh, about that David yeah. Crane's uh, game. What is it, the Game Maker? Yeah. So, someone actually made a version of uh, Mega uh, Mania for the C64 with that. And it's actually oh, really? pretty good. Yeah, it's not 2600 quality, but it, it, it works. So I thought that was pretty cool. There you go. Mm. Uh, so, Legendary Whizball, Say Hero, Power Drift, both on the 64, and Hunter on the Amiga. I'll cheat and grab R-Type 2 on the Amiga as well. Is that even an Activision game? Uh, R-Type 2. Sure about that one. I think think they did a conversion. I think they did a conversion, dude. Okay. Just like they did uh, Ninja Spirit uh, by Irem, which is a bloody awesome game. But anyway, sorry. Sorry, Azza. Go for it. You're right, buddy. You're Uh, right. And last but not least, Ben Cheney. Can it say Ghostbusters and everything else is a distant second? That game and Activision logo are synonymous for me. Wow. That's a good one to end it on. Yeah, just real quick, R-Type 2, yes, 1991, Amiga and, and the ST. There you go. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So what were your favourites, uh, AC? Activision games. Or Activision your top games. three. My top, my top three. You're going to be predictable here. River Raid, Pitfall 2. And actually, I'm going to go with the Power, Power Drift because I, it was one game I had had on my 64 as a kid and loved the hell out of it, even if I was got in trouble for playing it because the uh, yeah, it looked like the guy would give the finger as he drove past people and my parents caught, caught me playing it one day and flipped out about it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great port. That was a great port. Well, um, uh, any more? Aaron? Most of them, I think, is, is, is probably a good... To sum it up, um, I'll quickly yeah. look at the Facebook wall. There's only two here, but thanks guys for chipping in here. It's uh, John Pro- Proventure, uh, River Raid on the Atari 2600, uh, Hero on the C64, and Du Turos on the Amiga. I've never heard of that before. Might check that out. Uh, Graham W. Wopke, Hero on the C64 was excellent, and Pitfall on the 2600 was great too. I also enjoyed Taz Times in Tone Town on the C64. Haven't heard of that one either. Jeez, they've done a lot of obscure titles. They have, that's awesome. I've never heard of that one before. How about you, Des? Top three, go. Really hard. Okay, go. All right, quickly. Now that you mentioned Ninja Spirit, I didn't realise that Activision... um, Published that one on the C64, so I'm picking that. I really like the C64 port of Hero. You know what? I'll go Power Drift as well, because that's actually great. Dude, you're not going to pick Beam Rider? Bloody hell. Oh, look, I love Beam Rider, but I like it on the, on the 2600. Yeah. Only boo. because I grew up with it. I mean, I've got the card as well on the C64. It, it pretty much plays the same. All right, I'll say Beam Rider. How's that? I'll knock Power Drift off. Ah, you're so nice. Yeah. No, because no, because every time I think of Power Drift, I think of Sega. I, I, yeah, the fact that um, um, Activision did the conversion, but um, yeah, man. Uh, I'll go next, I guess, and then we'll leave it to, uh, for Mr. Arnold to give us his. But uh, I'm going to go with Decathlon, man. Um, I remember getting the card on the C64 and breaking those brown, ugly joysticks. I broke about four of them. Um, uh, awesome, awesome game. River Raid, Carol Shaw. Uh, 
the quintessential uh, shoot 'em up strategy. You know, do you pick up the fuel cells or you don't? Love that game, uh, and it's always proven popular at PAX as well in the competition games. Um, and I was going to say Ninja Spirit, but I'm not. I'll go with um, Pathfinder, uh, which is yeah one of those obscure shoot 'em ups where uh, your uh, fighter has actually got legs, so you actually change level. You can either be flying or on the ground as well. So there's obstacles that you've got to go past that you can't fly over. Um, and that's really, really cool, man. Um, gets a bit, you've got to get used to, to the actual controls, but once you get used to them, it's, uh, it's pretty nifty. Shoot them up. So then my three. Wow, so, it's, right. it's, so it's an actual shooter. <clears throat> Here I am thinking it's like a puzzle game or something. Nah, yeah. past one, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, you actually fly around, but then you gotta, you gotta get down low and walk on the actual uh, planet as well, uh, or yeah, pick things up and yeah. Oh wow! Far out. The box, the box doesn't. Yeah, and the box of the cover doesn't really give that away because it's no. a dude hitting, dude hitting a wall and cracking it with a hammer. It doesn't really sort of give you the, yeah, any sort of idea of what it is. Well, so, yeah, my, 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 car, my car's just brown. It's got like a. Like a, a, a de Bloom picture or something, like a emblem or something. Dude, you were supposed to use your imagination back in those days. No, no, but no, but it looks like a coin or something. Uh, it actually oh. looks fine. There's, nah, it's not... I don't know. Okay, that's weird. Hmm, anyway, I'm going to actually play that tomorrow. <laughs> that's cool. All right, uh, Tim, what are your top Hi. three Activision? And look, I, I think it's fair that we can you can go onto the consoles if you like. Oh well, then it's all Call of Duty, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no World of Warcraft. Ah, oh, come on. World of Warcraft. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know. I'm not not a big Pitfall fan. Sorry. Um, I, I do enjoy River Raid. That's fantastic. Um, Kaboom was a great oh. uh, game with a paddle. Um, seeing uh, Mame play that is is it's magical um he's just ridiculous in the way he's memorized all those patterns so uh kaboom's a one we use a paddle controller catch all the bombs big thief at the top excitement plus um and also yeah i I can't go i'm a big big kaiju fan love godzilla and all that sort of stuff king kong so i can't go past rampage oh fair enough yeah cool Cool is that enough? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> did I did I do good? <laughs> I, I was actually no, no all about Kaboom because I was I've been playing it on the Atari 800, the uh, XCGS. So, wow, you reminded me on that one. That's it's great with the paddle. Really? Yeah, it's super fast. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it gets <laughs> out of control. Um. All right. Cool. All right. So quick, quick shout out. Quick yeah. shout out to Shanghai. On the Amiga. No, just joking. <laughs> is, that, is that like a you, Mahjong or something? I'm assuming, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, How, Howard the Duck for a moment there. Everyone loves Howard. Yeah, well, oh, I, that was I, a... I liked it. I liked it. I, I've oh, only no. seen the film, and I don't remember much from it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. It was gloriously terrible. Uh that the rumors are true. <laughs> oh yeah, not not holiday Star Wars holiday special terrible, but it's it's definitely up there. Okay. Ah, Star Wars holiday special has got it's got a charm to it, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, and cool. That's that's it, gentlemen. That's we are it. at the end, I believe. 
it is the end. And I think it's time for um, plugs and shout-outs. What do you reckon before we head off? so. So, so where can you find us, Darren? Yes. Oh, we can find us at uh, Facebook. So just look for Press Play and Tape on Facebook, on Twitter, on um, Podbean, on iTunes, at RetroDomination.com, at OzRetroGamer.com. We're everywhere. So there you go. Yeah. Everywhere. And every, um, every form of social media will have a link to the podcast as well. And if you download via iTunes, if you can give us a review, that would be awesome. So thank you. Thank you. There you go. There you go. Any quick shout outs before we head off? Anyone? To all our listeners, man. All our listeners, they're the best. Simple as (laughs) that. Love yous. Love yous. And Mr. Tim Arnold for um, joining us with an empty glass of whiskey. That's all right. I've been uh, slurping at the, uh, the the melting ice. It's been great. It's been great. Nah, still there. You. Quick, give some more, some more. Cheers, Tim. Good, good chat with you, mate. Nah, thank, thanks good. for jumping on, man. Anyway, we finally got you on. So it's cool. That's it. It's all That's about it. Sega, man. It's all about Sega. So, okay. So this is the end. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, catch you next time. Adios. Oh, da- Adios. Des, Des. Yeah? Des. Oh, um, I know we're going to get a lot of hate mail for this, but it's uh, Sega. We've been calling it Sega all this time, but it's Sega, apparently. Oh, I call it Sega. And on that note, <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh. Me too. Oh, remember the old ads? It's the ads. The old ads. Yeah. Did you know oh. Sega's a... Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that it's Sega? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and for all those people, and for all those people, they say, "Oh, but it said it on Sonic." Sonic came out in '91. We're talking about 1987. There was no Sonic back then, and it never said Sega. It it just Sega. The logo came up, and that was it. That's it. We didn't have speech in those days. Correct. Yeah. Yes, didn't. Get off our lawn. Are <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, you? <laughs> Okay, guys, take it easy. See you later. Bye. 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 Bye.